You're listening to Frankly Speaking, weekly primary care insights for your practice, brought to you by PrimeMed. Feel better, help you lose weight, and make your significant other happy? Is this too good to be true? Today we're going to be discussing obstructive sleep apnea with Susan Feeney, assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, Graduate School of Nursing, and Family Nurse Practitioner Program Coordinator. Susan, welcome to the show. Hey, Frank. Glad to be here. I have a 59-year-old patient who comes in for a physical. He's got a BMI of 32, and I just have 100 things to think about for his health. Um, What are the current recommendations and guidelines around screening for obstructive sleep apnea? Well, the USPSTF just came out with a, uh, a new guideline for asymptomatic patients, which is what their focus is. And basically, they, it was inconclusive. They had an I statement, which means that there's insufficient data to recommend general screening of asymptomatic patients. So what that means is, though, if you have a patient with risk factors, that you'd want to be asking them about some of these symptoms. Because we, what they also pointed out was um, in studies of primary care providers that primary care providers rarely ask patients about sleep disordered breathing. And they may see risk factors, but they may not ask about the symptoms. So, and then they found that um, only 20% of people who had those symptoms actually self-reported them. So if you have a patient with those risk factors um, that we'll we'll discuss in a second, uh, you would really wanna find out if they were symptomatic so that you could um, think about doing some screening. That's amazing that only 20% of patients yes. actually will report it. Well, let, let's pretend my 59-year-old patient comes in for his physical and on review of systems, um, I'm able to tease out that he does admit to snoring very loudly and regularly and that his wife reports that sometimes during the night she wakes up because he stopped breathing. What are some of the risk factors for the development of obstructive sleep apnea? Well, your patient has quite a few. Um, Male gender is one of the top risk factors, Um, although women catch up or get close postmenopausally. Really? Yeah, so like everything else, estrogen is a double-edged sword. So (laughs) it it does, uh, they do catch up. Uh, Not quite to um, the levels of male, but that gap narrows. And then age, uh, the peak age is for OSA, or uh, obstructive sleep apnea, is 40 to 70 years. And then after that, it seems to plateau. Um, but those are the sort of peak years, so he's right in the thick of that. Um, and then an increased BMI, which he clearly has. He's, a, he's in the obese um, section. Um, they also look at uh, neck size, neck circumference, and if he has a, I believe it's uh, 19 inches, but if he has an increased neck size, that seems to be a risk factor. And um, any sort of um, missing teeth or dentures that they don't wear at night, um, any sort of cranial craniofacial abnormalities, thickening or uh, problems in the sinuses, nasopharynx, that kind of thing. But he's clearly has uh, some risk factors and he's also symptomatic. Right. Because he's complaining about snoring, gasping, um, any type of, uh, the other thing you would, the spouse may report is some sort of thrashing or arousal and movement. That would all be indicative of, of, uh, of, of potential obstructive sleep apnea. 
I've had two patients lately tell me that they, as they've aged, they've routinely started falling asleep on long trips. Yes. And uh, that, that's also something that's been scaring me. Right, and that's, that's actually a very good point. Uh, daytime sleepiness is up there as, as a, one of the hallmarks of, um, of symptoms. So it isn't just um, snoring, because many people will say, you know, I don't snore, I feel fine. And when you really ask them, do you fall asleep during the day, they may say, no, not really, but with things you need to ask, which come out in a, a screening test called the upward sleepiness scale, or do you fall, fall asleep in the afternoon if you're sitting at, at a traffic light? If you sit down with a newspaper, you know, can you get through an article without falling asleep? Can you uh, watch a television show in the evening without falling asleep? All of those things are indicative of daytime sleepiness. Um, and um, that would be, again, another symptom that we would um, want to explore with him. That's great. Well, now we know uh, some of the common uh, signs and symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea. What are the health risks of this problem? First of all, there's a very strong association, um, obviously, with obesity, that people who are obese are more apt to be uh, have sleep apnea, but also the sleep apnea has been indicated as worsening obesity, um, and that there's theories that it might be increased cortisol because they're stressed at night because they're constantly trying to keep their airway open. Um, again, daytime sleepiness, which can lead to motor vehicle accidents. Um, hypertension has been linked. Um, and then there is also good evidence um, that there could be a relationship of heart failure with, uh, with coronary artery disease. Metabolic syndrome, which you know is is that central obesity that takes you back to the the obesity connection, and the increased triglycerides, low HDL, um, that seems to be worsened by um, sleep apnea, and there does seem to be an increase in all cause mortality, and um, we know that within with severity, as a sleep apnea it becomes more severe, more uh, apneic or high popnic episodes at night, um, there's definitely a risk for, um, again, cardiovascular disease and also renal failure. Um, depression has been linked to it. Um, ventricular ectopy that they've seen more frequently in wow. older men. Mm -hmm. um, and then cognitive impairment in, in older women that were living independently. So I mean, there's, there's definitely uh, seems to be a, a association with these things. And they do note that most of these people that have sleep apnea also have other conditions, so they don't know the real cause, but there definitely seems to be an association. Well, those associations, I mean, we're talking about many of the common complaints, right. and this is a self-fulfilling cycle, so that right. if you get overweight, you increase your risk of sleep apnea, right. you become more overweight, it, 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 it tumbles into hypertension, heart exactly. disease. The other death. thing, too, that I wanted to mention is there's a very strong association between type 2 diabetes and sleep apnea, and we know that folks who have diabetes very often meet the criteria for um, at least mild sleep apnea. And there is um, a recommendation from the ADA that that should be at least assessed in all patients with type 2 diabetes. I think that's, that, that makes perfect sense. Right. Now that we've discussed some of the risk factors and the adverse outcomes of obstructive sleep apnea, let's talk a little bit about treatment options because patients seem to have different abilities to tolerate the most common one. So right. what do you suggest? Well, for treatment, um, the two that are the most common are, is the CPAP, the continuous positive pressure, uh, airway pressure machine, and then the, <clears throat> excuse me, the mandibular um, alignment uh, devices. Mm -hmm. um, the CPAP 
does have some pretty good evidence. It shows that it really can reduce the, the what we refer to as the AHI index, which is the ap apnea, hypopnea index. That's how many of those episodes occur in an hour. That's obviously measured during a, a sleep study. That, that you can get into a normal range if you use your CPAP as prescribed. Um, the mandibular devices or the, you know, the, the they're mouthpieces that help push the lower jaw out mm -hmm. and away from so that the tongue is pulled from the back of the throat. Um, has not as strong evidence that it helps reduce that. There is some reduction, not as strong as the CPAP, but both of these help with the sleep worth, uh, upward sleepiness scale, that people have a decreased daytime or perceived incre increase in arousal during, awake during the day and less sleepiness during the day. The uh, CPAP has a um, a shows that there is some evidence of a modest improvement in hypertension as well. The problem is, is that the studies um, that they look at as far as outcomes, some of them only go out 12 weeks, a few are at a year, they're not powered very well, so they're, um, it's hard to really say how these, um, how well this is sustained. The other thing with the CPAP machine, as you know, um, people have to use it. And um, they really are working really hard to get these face masks to be less obtrusive. Um, they have the little nasal pillows that most people would rather have, but then depending on the person's facial structure or how much obstruction they have, they may not be able to use those nasal pillows. They may have to use the face mask. And I have patients that'll say, yeah, I use it for about an hour and a half, and then I rip it and throw it across the room. So that's not helping them. Sure. So uh, many providers will say let's start with the mandibular device and see if that can help um, and then also with the if they can lose weight because losing weight also can help um, obviously if, if they can shrink some of those structures that are causing the obstruction in the, the oral pharynx area but um, surgery is less talked about and that's really in very specific cases where people might have you know sinus uh, congestion or hypertrophy of those tissues or nasal polyps. Um, I had a patient who was, really didn't fit the, the criteria of uh, someone who should have sleep apnea, but she did. She was thin, she was young. They did a uvulectomy, and um, she was really funny. She said, um, I found out what that's for. It's to stop milk going up your nose. So she had to have, she had to go to a speech therapist to be trained how to swallow. But that's, that's, um, that's an option that really is used very rarely. Very rarely. Um, but the CPAP is probably the gold standard, and the problem is, is trying to get people to use it consistently. Any hints or advice? when you're treating obstructive sleep apnea for patients who choose to go the CPAP method? Do you have any other suggestions? Well, what I do is I, I say it's really worth their while to spend a good amount of time at the um, equipment store because those folks really can fit it to the face. They, they, and many times they can uh, titrate the pressure so that because a lot of times people will put it on, it pops off their face. Um, and so if they can really dedicate some time to spin there, lay down, maybe take a nap, watch the, how it fits on their face, mm -hmm. um, that can really help. They really do need to clean it frequently because there's, the facial oils will get on it and that can cause a rash and it can also, if that seal of the mask is not good, it's not going to feel good and it's going to, they'll talk about it popping off and being distracting. Um, but once they can get it fitted and if they can, and if they can, if they are suitable for the nasal pillows, 
Um, I mean, I, I don't know if you've seen this, but I have patients who, you know, they'll, they're back in the room sleeping with their spouse. Sure. You know, they're, um, they're actually getting up and feeling good during the day. And I've seen some, I've just anecdotally, some great reductions in blood pressure. In fact, what I tell my students is if you've got a patient who is following things very well and taking their medication and you can't get their blood pressure under control, really need to think about sleep apnea as a complicating factor. And that if, even just because you've ordered the CPAP doesn't mean they're using it. Um, so you really have to be, you know, you know, work with that. I think that's fantastic. I mean, we think about causes of resistant hypertension and we think about alcohol or NSAID use, but thinking about obstructive sleep apnea and addressing it is a, is a great suggestion. Um, any other final thoughts on diagnosis and management of obstructive sleep apnea? Well, the diagnosis, what, what's interesting is we now are seeing more of the home sleep um, apnea testing uh, because the, there's four different levels of testing. There's type 1, 2, 3, and 4. And type 1 is the classic polysonography that, you know, is done in the sleep lab. And that's the gold standard and, you know, that's probably $3,000. And that measures um, everything. You get EEGs, you can see what's happening sleep-wise, are they in REM, because there's a lot of REM disorder, sleep, uh, sleep disordered breathing uh, that it can occur during REM sleep. And it also picks up movement, so if you're really not sure what's going on with your patient, is it restless leg? Is it, is it um, um, you know, uh, rapid limb movement? Is it central sleep apnea? then these are really, that's really the gold standard because it's observed, it's attended. Um, you get to look at how many of these episodes occur in an hour. Um, the type three and four are the ones that are becoming more popular. Three is, is uh, the home study comes under that. The home study is not attended, right? So there's no technician. Um, but the, th the feeling is the person sleeping in their own bed, they're gonna have a better night's sleep. Obviously, it's unobserved. They, you don't know what position they're in. We know that people with sleep apnea, when they're on their back, it's much worse. Um, so you don't have that information. But what I have seen is the data is coming out that for sleep apnea, if it's positive, the test is positive, it's, it's very sensitive. Where it becomes a problem is if it's uh, sort of equivocal or, or normal, uh, because it underestimates that index, um, that may, you, you can't really be completely reassured that your patient doesn't have sleep apnea. But if it comes back positive, it's, it's, a, it's a good place. You, you can have a pretty good feeling that that's a positive test. So, um, and it's much more, it's more uh, palatable for people to do that, to have the test at home. So it sounds like if you have someone that you suspect has obstructive sleep apnea, doing the type 3 home study is a great first place to go. Right. If you're unsure what's going on, you might want to go to the type 1 tr traditional sleep study. Right. And, and what's also nice is insurance now seems to be picking up the home study. Susan, this was an excellent overview of obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, I really appreciate your taking the time to join us today. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure.